we're back in our uh, We Believe series as we are unpacking the Apostles' uh, Creed together. And if you happen to be uh, new to New Life and you're wondering, like, why on earth would you guys spend uh, a couple of months unpacking the, uh, the Apostles' Creed? That's a great question. And the, an- the answer is this. The, uh, it's probably the oldest creed in church history. All right? So it dates back in its earliest forms to the second century. And so Christians across the centuries have been reciting this specific creed, right? It is a, a foundational belief system of pretty much all Christians throughout uh, time and history. It really kind of anchors us to our past, Orthodox Christian faith. I think that's important for us as modern-day uh, Christians. Early on, the first few centuries, uh, actually the Apostles' Creed was used as the primary discipleship tool for new believers, right? And so if someone would begin to follow Jesus, they would have a mentor in the faith that would come alongside them, lead them through the creed, help them memorize the creed as a foundational kind of faith-setting thing for brand new believers. And then lastly, I think it's probably the best summary of the entire biblical narrative, right? So if you've been with us for the last few weeks, you know that the Apostle Creed starts in Genesis 1 with with creation from God the Father. And it just kind of works all the way through the biblical narrative And it ends in the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, with the return of Jesus and eternal life for his people. And so again, just a beautiful summary of the entire thing in a hundred-word creed that anybody can memorize uh, and recite. So here's what we've covered so far in the creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty. So that's where we started. uh, uh, The first week, creator of heaven and earth. So there, there we are, Genesis 1, the creation and the narrative. And in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, uh, suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, died, was buried, descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. Then he ascended into heaven. We started looking at that last week. And is currently seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. All right? So that's what we've been going through the last six or seven weeks so far. Early on, We talked about when we say those two words together, I believe, as Christians, that is more than just intellectual assent or knowledge, right? Because how many of you know it's possible to know a lot about something without believing in that very same thing, right? And so we've kind of used the example. We all know we probably would be healthier if we got up at 4 a.m. every morning and jogged seven miles and ate nothing but broccoli and like kale salad, but none, none of us really do that, right? We, we know it, it's knowledge, but it really hasn't changed our life. We really don't believe in it, right? And in God's economy, when we say, I believe, that really is kind of a deep-seated heart belief that affects actions, right? So as believers, when we say, I believe, that means it's moving from our brains and it's bleeding down into our hearts and our souls in a way that actually changes the way that we live. It's not just lip service. It's not just an intellectual exercise. It actually begins to to shape the way that we think and we see the world and we correspond and interact with our spouse and kids and neighbors and coworkers and classmates and the world uh, around us. And so when we say, I believe, as Christians, we are saying we stake our lives on these things. We We are orienting our entire lives on these truths. So here's our line today in the creed on the screens for you. It says this. I believe he, that's Jesus, will come again to judge the living and the dead. Now, here's what I know to be specifically true about this line. As Christians, we tend to get really excited about the first part of that line. Jesus is coming back again. Hallelujah. Praise God. He's coming back. We get excited. Yeah, baby. And then we get to the second part of that line, and everybody just kind of looks at the ground. No eye contact. We just kind of whisper it, right? I believe Jesus is going to come again. 
judge the living and the dead, right? Now, why is that? We don't, we don't really talk about judgment a lot in our culture, do we? Why is that? I think we get, we get a little bit uncomfortable with judgment in our particular culture. I think even, even Christians, even followers of Jesus, get a little bit funny when it comes to the return of Jesus. Have you noticed that? Now, we, we typically, I think we have one, a couple of different groups in most churches, a couple of different camps. One, uh, I think there are a group of Christians in most churches that tend to go a little bit overboard with the return of Jesus, right? And if you're here, if that's you, we love you. We're glad, we're glad that you're here. But there's a group of people that tend to go overboard with it, right? These are the people that have like charts and graphs and date predictions taped into the inside of their Bible. And they're just waiting on that day. They think they've got it mapped out. They've got it figured out. That's one group of people. And then you have another group of Christians in the church who don't see any practical significance at all of the return of Jesus to their everyday lives. And whether you're in that group that kind of goes overboard, you're just kind of obsessed about charts and graphs and when, when is it going to happen, or if you're in that other group that tends not to think about it at all, I just want you to know, either one of those extremes is super unhealthy, extremely unhelpful for you. Because the truth is, listen, how you understand the return of Jesus has huge implications for how you think and how you live your life as a modern-day person in 2022. So if you're in either one of those camps, and I would just say, be, be honest, kind of do a self-assessment. Am I, am I in that camp that kind of goes a little overboard? Or am I in that other camp, maybe, where I never even give it any thought? My prayer and my hope is that our time together over the next 35 minutes or so would, would bring us into balance together as a, as a community of faith, as a church family on the return of Jesus as loving king and judge. If you have a Bible, go ahead and head for Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25, that's going to be our anchor passage uh, together this morning. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, this will be on the screens for you as well. And here's what you're going to notice as we begin to go through the rest of the creed. What we've covered in the creed so far has been what God has done. All right, so if you think back to what we've looked at the last six or seven weeks, it's all past tense, right? God created the heavens and the earth. Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, right? He was buried. He descended. He rose. He is, a seat, he is seated at the right hand of the Father. All of that is past tense. Well, this week we begin to shift into what Jesus will do, future tense. Now, I think sometimes this can actually be harder for us because it can be more challenging to put our faith in things that have not happened yet. And yet, what we'll begin, I think, to see this week and in the weeks to follow is that putting our faith in what Jesus will do is just as important in our faith journey as putting our faith in what Jesus has done. Now, just a, just a disclaimer on the, the front end of the message this morning, some of what we will, we will be chatting about may press you into some spaces that you find uncomfortable this morning. Now, I'm, I'm okay with that. I hope that you're okay with that because, listen, guys, I believe with all of my heart that all of God's word, like the easy parts and the hard parts, are ultimately for our good. And so even the parts that are hard, even the parts that kind of press us into uncomfortable spaces, ultimately are there to help us grow and to mature us into men and women who are more like uh, his son, uh, Jesus. So I hope that uh, you'll experience that this morning. Now, here, here's, here's a map of what we're going to see as we work through this. Here's kind of the, the map of the morning. We're going to see one judge, one judge, two groups, Two destinies and one way to avert disaster, right? One judge, two groups, two destinies, one way to avert disaster. Let's begin Matthew chapter 25, starting in verse 
31, this is Jesus speaking and teaching. He says this, when the Son of Man, that you should know that is his favorite term for himself in the scriptures. So when the Son of Man uh, comes in his glory and all the angels with him. So we get this incredible picture of the return of Jesus, right? He's, he's coming in all his glory, uh, a huge army of angels with him. And then he will sit on his glorious throne. Let me pause there and just say, uh, when Jesus comes back again, he is not coming as a helpless babe in a manger. He is coming back as the warrior king to establish justice. It's going to be a sight to behold. Verse 32, before him will be gathered all the nations. And he will separate, this is where people start to get uncomfortable. He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Now, let me just pause there for a second and say what we're about to see Jesus say to those who are inheriting the kingdom, some have, ta- have kind of taken what he's about to say and said, well, this, is, this means uh, we, we can earn our salvation. Kind of the idea of salvation by works. But let me tell you why that can't be true. If you look back at what he just said, he says, come to me, you who are blessed by my Father, and you're going to inherit the kingdom. Now, listen, an inheritance is not something that you earn, is it? It's not something that you earn. It's something that you get because you're a part of the family. You haven't done anything to uh, earn your inheritance. So we, we know that he can't be talking about us earning this everlasting life. It's something that we inherit from our Father because we're part of the family. And then he, he goes on to say this kingdom is prepared for you from the foundation of the world. In other words, before you were ever born, before you did anything good or bad. So you clearly did not earn this in any kind of way. This is a free gift from God. I want to make that clear. All right, so he says, the king will say to the, those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom. Again, you didn't earn it. You're just a part of the family. It's been prepared for you from the foundations of the world. Verse 35, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry and feed you? Are thirsty and give you drink? When did we ever see you as a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Now again, remember, they're not earning their salvation. This is, this is an overflow of an authentically changed heart, right? So when we come into that relationship with Jesus, he puts his Holy Spirit inside of us. He begins to change us from the inside out, right? And it begins to change our actions, the way that we live our lives. That's what we talked about when we say, I believe. As Christians, it's not just an intellectual thing. It's something that bleeds down into our soul in a way that changes the way that we live. This is what Jesus is describing here. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. Stranger, you did not welcome me. Naked, you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. And then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did you see we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison? It did not minister to you. And then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to the least one of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous will go into eternal life. One judge 
Two groups of people, two destinies, one way to avert disaster. Now, there seems to be, even in the church, even among Christians, a lot of confusion about the return of Jesus. Now, most of that confusion, I think, is a result of us asking in the modern-day American church the wrong question when it comes to the return of Jesus. We seem to be obsessed with answering the question, when? Right? That seems to be the obsession, like, when is it going to happen? And let's watch the, blue, the blood moons, and let's figure out when it's going to happen. And is that guy the Antichrist? Is that guy the Antichrist? Let's figure out when this is going to happen. There seems to be an obsession with answering the question, when? But it's interesting, when you study Jesus, his teachings, the disciples', disciples teaching, they seem far more focused on answering the questions, what and why, when it comes to the return of Jesus. What and why? And so that's what we're going to focus our time on together this morning. When we say there's one judge, as we just read in Matthew chapter 25, here's what we mean. And again, this is where a lot of people in our culture check out. This is where a lot of people in our culture get very, very uncomfortable. When we say there's one judge, here's what we mean. On that final day, when you and I stand before the judgment seat of God Almighty, it's called the, the great throne, the great white throne judgment, right? On that day, that final day, we all stand before our maker, God the judge, you need to understand this. On that day, you're not going to be the judge. Do you know that? On that day, you are not going to be the judge, which is why it's madness. A lot of these cultural talking points that we hear, hey, just live your own truth. You just be you. You just be authentic to you. Live your own truth. Listen, when you stand before God on that last day, there is one judge, and it will not be you. So let me just tell you, in love, don't live your truth. Live his truth. Don't live your truth. That is the most foolish thing you could ever do. On that final day, there's one judge, and it's not you. And it's not me. And here's another thing. It's not going to be your friends at school that you think are so important and so cool to impress them. It's not going to be your coworkers. It's not going to be your family. It's not going to be, listen, it's not going to be our culture. What our culture says is right and wrong is not going to be your ultimate standard on that day. It'll be Jesus. Your opinions and your feelings will not be judged on that day. On that final great day, there will be one judge, and his name is Jesus. And if that is true, and it is, what he says goes in doing anything other than orienting our entire lives around him and his teaching would be the height of human foolishness. Now, here, here's what I know to be true when it comes to a subject like judgment. Most of us in the room, even those of us who have been following Jesus, most of us are uncomfortable with it. In fact, some of you are uncomfortable right now. You're like, dang it, I wish I would have stayed home today. Why'd I have to come on Judgment Day, right? So uncomfortable are we as modern-day Americans that very few modern churches nowadays will even touch the subject with a 10-foot pole because they're scared the crowd will, will clear out. But here's the fascinating thing. I didn't know this before I really kind of dug in this week. This is fascinating. Listen to the, the New Testament, not Old Testament, just the New Testament alone, refers to the second coming of Jesus over 300 times. If you do the math, that comes out to about one out of every 13 verses in the New Testament deals with some aspect of the return of Jesus, many of them including the final judgment. Now I'll admit, this is an uncomfortable concept for us. I read uh, one, uh, one cultural comment, uh, commentator who said, uh, in our culture today, and I think this is good, I think he's right, he said, in our culture today, judging evil is the only thing worse than doing evil. Judging evil in our culture is the only thing worse than actually doing evil. See, judging anything in our culture has now become the highest form of sin in our culture. 
That's probably one of, one of the reasons why one of the most common tattoos you see is uh, only God can judge me, right? See, I see that all the time, tattooed on people's arms or leg or whatever it is. Only God can judge me. As if to say, don't you dare judge anything that I say, do, or think. See, see, judgment has become the highest form of sin in our culture, which, by the way, and this is, this is not tethered to the text, what I'm about to say is, is for free, which, by the way, this leads to total madness in our culture. And like, insanity. Which is, which is why, no joke, you can look this up, why we have some academic institutions, universities, colleges, that we're going to be sending some of our kids to, some of our grandkids to, who are now saying, if you don't believe me, you can look this up, who are now saying, we ought not use the word pedophile anymore. Can't use it. It's not culturally acceptable. It's not loving. Now we've got to use the term MAPS, minor attracted person. That's a real thing. You can look it up. This is circulating in kind of the progressive university systems. Can't, can't use pedophile anymore because that's not affirming. That's not loving. That's too judgy. We've got to use the word MAPS, minor attracted person. I kid you not. And we cloak this madness under the guise of tolerance, which, by the way, is, is a brilliant strategy, isn't it, by our enemy? Because we take all these things that are evil and harmful in our culture, and we just put this cloak of nice language on it, tolerance, affirmation, love, and then everybody's like, well, I don't want to be the opposite of those things. Like, I don't want to be intolerant. I don't want to be unloving, so I guess I'm a part of this group over here. It's madness. It's deception. But this is exactly what happens in any culture, right? When you remove any judgment, when you remove any standard or right and wrong in a culture, this is where you end up. Total madness, insanity, cloaked as good things, tolerance, love, affirmation. Church, how did we get here as a culture? Now, now, now here's, here's how, at least in part, here's how we got here in part. It's because we have become uncomfortable with the concept of any kind of judgment at all. And here's the reason why, I think. Because I think we've gotten to this place because we think if someone else's actions, thoughts, or motives can be judged, then maybe my thoughts, actions, and motives can be judged. And we can't be having that. It's fine if you judge somebody else, but don't you dare be judging my thoughts, my actions, my choices, lifestyle choices. Can't, we can't have that. So, so in order that I don't feel judged, we're just going to remove judgment from our entire culture where nobody ever feels judged. So here's the thing, in our culture now, on the one hand, we hate judgment, but on the other hand, almost paradoxically, we all have this deep-seated longing for justice, don't we? And a hatred for injustice. Now, my theory for why that paradox exists in almost all of us, we hate judgment on the one hand, and yet we long for justice on the other hand, is because ultimately we want justice for others, just not for us. Right? So that guy cuts me off on I-26, and God smite that sinner! Help him wreck. I don't want him to die. Just break both of his legs, right? Don't pretend like it's just me. I know some of you sickos have those thoughts as well. God, smite that sinner. Smite that guy over there. Give me grace. God, judge that guy over there for his sin. Give me grace. I want grace. But in the midst of all of that, we see this built-in desire for justice from the earliest ages as human beings, don't we? My kids are getting a little bit older now, but when they were... When they were little, one of the most common phrases out of my three kids' mouths was, that's not fair. Parents, you know exactly what I'm talking about. That's not fair. Dad, he got a bigger cake, piece of cake than me. That's not fair. I had to clean out the dishwasher last time, and you're asking me to do it again. She hadn't done it in a week. That's not fair. We come out of the womb with this obsession for justice and hatred for injustice. 
This is why we're obsessed with high-profile uh, court cases and trials, right? When I was growing up, when I was a kid, it was O.J. Simpson. I can still, if you're older, you probably remember that, right? Turned on the news, there's this white Bronco, you know, flying down the road, and we were obsessed for months with this, with this trial. It's kind of devolved over the years. Now it's Johnny Depp and Amber Heard and who said what and all that kind of stuff, but we're obsessed with trials, with justice. This, this deep-seated longing for justice is even expressed in our uh, most popular blockbuster movies, right? If, if you've noticed, they all have the same plot line, right? They just change the actors, change the scenario, change a couple of details. It's the same plot line. Every single blockbuster movie, the bad guy shows up, does some awful things. We pearl clutch like we didn't see it coming. <gasps> I cannot believe he did that to her. I cannot believe he betrayed her and killed those innocent puppies, right? And then the climax of every great movie plot is the good guy shows up and starts to dispense a little justice, right? Starts blowing bad people up, busts out the machine gun. There's blood everywhere. Like, yeah, yeah, get him. Shoot him again. Make sure he's dead. We just turn into these little monsters, right? We have to be careful that this imprint of justice doesn't like spill over into sinful hatred. We have to keep those things into check, I think. But we have this imprint of justice on our hearts and our souls. This is exactly why, by the way, when you hear about some awful crime perpetuated particularly against a child or someone who is vulnerable, it enrages you, doesn't it? It does me. Man, when I hear stories of some child being abused or somebody who's vulnerable being abused, the elderly or something like that, it enrages me. A couple weeks ago, you guys may remember a story of a, uh, a mom, jogger in, in Memphis, Tennessee, early 30s, mama two, teacher, went for an early morning uh, run and was snatched off the road, brutally murdered by a career criminal who was released early. I just remember like reading this article of what happened and how it happened, and I just remember like rage swelling in my heart. I just had this thought, like, God, just give me five minutes and a baseball bat for that guy. And I will take care of justice, I promise. And we, we are all born, and again, we have to keep it in check because we can go too far with it. We, it can turn into sin and, and hatred and all those things. But we're all born with this justice imprint in our souls. Why is that? Well, the Bible tells us exactly why in Romans chapter 2. The Bible tells us that God has written his law on our hearts. And so listen, it doesn't matter if you're watching online, you're in the room. It doesn't matter if you're a Christian. It doesn't matter if you're a Buddhist, a, a Muslim, agnostic, atheist. You have a moral compass because God put it there. And as beings created in the image of God, what Genesis 1 tells us, that, that we, as human beings, the only thing on planet Earth that are actually created in the very image of God, as image bearers of God, we bear his heart for justice. And this is actually a good instinct. This is a divine instinct that is put into us by our creator. So here, here's the first truth that I want you to see. This will be on the screens for you. Sounds so simple, but so, so deep at the same time. Number one, guys, listen, Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back. Now, you may not feel like he's coming back. You may not want him to come back. You may hope, if you're not a Christian, that he doesn't come back. You're like, man, I hope those Christians aren't wrong about that because I don't want him to come back if he's actually there. But I'm here to tell you, Jesus is coming back. Now, that may be years from now. It may be next month. It could be tonight while we sleep. You probably heard it said in our culture, there's a popular saying that there are only two things that are certain in life. Death and taxes. Have you ever heard that? Only two certainties in life, death and taxes. 
I would just add one more. Jesus is coming back. Death, taxes, and the return of the king. And when Jesus comes back, he's going to do away with both death and taxes, which is all the more reason we should be praying that he comes back, right? <laughs> I cannot wait. Cannot wait until death is abolished and I don't have to pay taxes anymore. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Now, how, how do we know that Jesus is coming back, Christian? He told us he would. He promised us he would, right? Did he not tell his disciples in the Gospels, I'm going away to prepare a place for you, and if I go away to prepare a place for you, I will come back for you so that where I am, you can be also. He's preparing a place for us. And he's promised to come back and to get us so that we could be where he is. Now, maybe you're like me, and you've looked around the world, and you've thought, man, there is, God, there's a lot of evil in the world. God, there's, there's so much suffering, and there's so much injustice and bloodshed, and, we, man, you get on the news every day, and it's some other rape or murder or atrocity in Russia or, you know, whatever it is. It's terrible, and maybe you're like me, and you've had the thought, like, God, what are you doing, man? God, where are you? God, what are you, what are you waiting on, God? Are you blind to our suffering down here? Are you blind to our pain? Do you know people I love are dying from cancer? There are thousands, hundreds of thousands of kids who will die of starvation and dehydration this year in Africa, in the Middle East, and Asia. Now, don't you see the injustice and the bloodshed and the rapes and the murder? Like, what are you doing? What are you waiting for? And look, I, just being honest with you guys, if, if I were God, if I were God, I would have come back a long time ago to open a can of whooptail on some folk. I would have come back a long time ago. Thank God I'm not God. But if you've ever had that same question that I've had, why, Jesus, why? Why the delay? Why haven't you come back to make all things right again? Why haven't you set everything in order? And you, why haven't you wiped away every tear and established your kingdom of life? And just, like, what's the holdup? The Bible actually, actually tells us exactly why he hasn't come back yet. So this will be on the screens for you. This is uh, the Apostle Peter, one of Jesus' three closest friends while he was on planet Earth. This is what Peter writes in, I think, 2 Peter chapter 3. Peter writes this, but do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. So what Peter's saying there is we have to remember when it seems like God is delaying, when it seems like he's late, we have to remember that God exists outside of the time-space continuum, meaning he's, he's not confined to time. He doesn't feel time or see time in the same way that we as mortal human beings do. He exists outside of the time-space continuum continuum right for him a day is like a thousand years a thousand years like a day verse 9 the lord is not slow in keeping his promise now he's talking about the second coming of jesus here he says the lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness instead listen to this he is patient with you not wanting anyone to perish but everyone to come to repentance why hasn't jesus come back yet here's why because god is not only just He's also loving and merciful. 
He is a good, loving, heavenly Father wishing that none should perish. And so the picture that the Apostle Peter paints for us of God in heaven is kind of this picture of God holding back the, the floodwaters of judgment. Just kind of holding it back. And he's like, just one more. Like, I just, I just want one more to find life in me. Just holding back judgment. Like, I just want her to find life in me. Just one more. I just want, I just want that one guy to find life and hope in me. I've created him. I love him. And that leads us to our second truth this morning. Number two, Jesus is both a loving and just judge. He is a loving and just judge. He is both simultaneously. Listen, guys. God cannot overlook your sin. He cannot. He will not. God will not overlook my sin, which is why in Matthew 25, Jesus says, I'm going to separate the sheep from the goats. Those who have trusted in me in this life are destined to everlasting life. Those to my left, those who reject me as king in this life, to everlasting punishment. Perfectly just, and at the very same time, unimaginably loving. One judge... Two groups of people, two destinies, one pathway to salvation. Now, here's the deal. Because God is just, listen, guys, this is important. You won't hear this in most churches today. Because God is just, sin must be paid for. Sin must be paid for because he's a just God. Now, we understand this even from a human perspective, but we seem to get uncomfortable with it from a divine perspective, which is kind of odd. But, but we're, we're, we're very comfortable with this in our context as human beings, right? If I, if I were to tell you of a man who brutally uh, kidnapped a bunch of kids and tortured them in his basement and, and killed them for sport, and then I told you he went before a judge, and that judge said, listen, don't worry about it, bro. We all make mistakes. You were just living your truth, dog. I'm living my truth. I, who am I to judge you? So you, just, you go out and just try to be a little sweeter next time. Would you be cool with that? Of course you wouldn't, unless you're a psychopath, right? There'd be riots in the streets. We would say, this is an unjust judge who's not worthy to be a judge. Now I want you to listen to me. God, in the same way, a God who does not judge evil would not be a God that is worthy of our lives and our worship. Now let me, let me just bring this home. Let me try to personalize this for, for you just for a minute. Your sin must be paid for. Not sin in general, not the world's sin. Your sin specifically must be paid for. Now understand this. this, is, this is not my, I'm not saying this. This is what Jesus is saying. There are two and only two ways this can happen. There are only two ways your sin can be paid for. Either you can pay for your sin on that great day of judgment as you are cast away from God for eternity in a place that the Bible calls hell. That's one way that you could pay for your sins. Or you can, in this life, trust in Jesus' payment on your behalf on the cross of Calvary. So the bottom line is, you either pay for your sins in hell or Jesus pays for them on the cross. The only choice you get is who pays for your sins. Because God's justice requires payment, just like any good earthly judge would. You only get to choose who makes that payment. Now, that can seem like bad news, Here's the breathtakingly good news. This is the gospel. God, listen guys, God in his great mercy, even though we all deserve his justice and his wrath because we are rebels against a perfect, sinless, holy God. Listen guys, I deserve death and separation from God, my creator, in hell forever. That's what I deserve. That's what I have earned for myself. That's what you've earned. But God instead, because he is a loving king, has chosen to take on your punishment himself. 
And he came into our world, the one that we jacked up with all of our sin. And he lived a perfect life, the one that you should have lived, I should have lived, but we couldn't because we're sinners. He died a brutal sinner's death in your place, and he rose again to give us abundant life now and forever. Listen, guys, we have a merciful king who, though he could not abandon justice, said, I will take their punishment for them. I will stand in their place. I will take their lashes. I will take their suffering. I will die their death so they'll never have to. Friend, there is no king like our king. There is no God like this God. Listen, friends, judgment doesn't have to be terrifying for you. It doesn't have to be. In Christ, listen, guys, in Christ, judgment becomes a launch pad for celebration and worship. Now, now let, me, let me show you how the, the mechanics of how this works. This is uh, Psalm 98, beautiful psalm about the coming of our king on that final day, judgment day. I want to just kind of read it with you and unpack it with you. This is what the psalmist writes in Psalm 98. Again, in context of the return of our king and the judgment on the final day, he says this, Sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. Remember we talked about that? That one pathway to avert disaster, that one pathway through Christ for salvation. There it is right there in verse 1. Verse 2, The Lord has made his salvation known and revealed his righteousness to the nations. Why do we go to the nations? Why do we go to North Africa? Why do we go to Nepal? Why do we go to the Middle East? This is why. We, we believe that God wants to reveal himself to all peoples in all nations. Verse 3, he has remembered his love and his faithfulness to Israel or God's people. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of God. Shout for joy to the Lord. All the earth burst into jubilant song with music. Make music to the Lord with a harp with the harp and the sound of singing, with trumpets and the blast of the ram's horn, shout for joy before the Lord the King. Let the sea resound and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy. Let them sing before the Lord. Why all this celebration? He continues, for he comes to judge the earth, and he will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples with equity. Church, listen, the return of Jesus and the final judgment it's calls for celebration for those of us who are in Christ. Now, for those who are not in Christ, that day will be a great, great day of terror, no doubt. But even if you're in that camp, if you would say, man, Chris, I'm not in that camp, I'm not a believer, I'm not a Christian, whether you're in the room or you're watching online, you're like, man, I, I just, I'm on the fence or I'm seeking or I'm just not convinced. Hey, here's the good news for you. It doesn't have to be a day of terror for you. God has made a pathway of escape through his son, Jesus, for you. So let me, let me just ask you a question, a very simple question, three words. Are you ready? Just do an honest analysis in your mind. Are you ready to meet your creator face to face? If your life were to end today, have you wrestled with your own mortality? Have you given thought to standing before your creator? whether it's through death or the second coming of Jesus. Are you ready? Now, I want to close just by giving us three super quick applications in light of the fact that Jesus is coming back, the fact that he's coming back as a just and loving judge. How then ought we to be living? Number one, first application is, friend, we ought to live ready for the second coming. Live ready. There, there's an old saying in the sports world, if you stay ready, you never have to get ready, right? 
If you stay ready, you never have to get ready. Listen, the time to get ready for the return of Jesus is not when you see the eastern sky split open and Jesus returning as a warrior king. You want to get a picture of that? Go to Revelation chapter 19, starting in verse 11. It's both terrifying and beautiful at the same time. The time to prepare for his second coming is not when you see him coming. If you stay ready, you never have to get ready. And so let me just ask you the same question again. Friend, are you ready? Like, if I, were to, if I were to tell you right now, in this moment, hey, I, you know, got a vision from God, and he told me in two hours, Jesus is coming back. So we're going to get out of here, we're going to go home, we're going to get you lunch, and that eastern sky is going to crack open, and Jesus is going to come back to judge the living and the dead. Would that excite your, your soul, your heart? Like, does that bring a sense of joy and thrill? Like, yeah! Been waiting for that. I can't wait till Jesus comes back, and he sets all things right. New, new heavens, new earth. Like, I can't wait till that happens. Or would that breathe a little bit of fear and trepidation into your heart and your mind? Like, dang, man, I don't, I don't know that I could stand before him. I don't know that that would go well for me. Now, if you're honest enough to say, hey, I'm in that second group, like, I, I would be scared. I would be nervous if I knew Jesus was coming back this afternoon. Let me, let, let me just tell you, let's talk. If you're online, there's, there's a chat host that would love to talk with you pray with you. If you're here in the room, soon as the service is over, I'm going to be down here. There's going to be some other prayer partners down here. I'd love to pray with you. I want you to know, listen guys, if you're not in Christ, you can be before you walk out of this place or log off online. It is possible, it is 100% possible for you to know Jesus and live with confidence that when he returns, you can celebrate and not fear. That is possible through Christ. Now here's the second application point. Almost done. Christian, live intentionally kingdom-focused lives. Listen, y'all, Jesus didn't save us and leave us just to huddle up in a little holy huddle and wait for years until he comes back. He didn't save us and just leave us to huddle up and not be about his mission. He has given us a task as we await his return. He has given us a mission, salt and light, city on a hill, make disciples across the street and around the world. Listen, y'all, I say this with all the love I can muster in my heart as one of your pastors here. There, there should be no such thing as a lazy Christian. There should be no such thing as a Christian who is unengaged in the mission of Jesus. We were put here for such a time as this. Now, listen, if you are in Christ and you are unengaged, reach out. We have a staff here, man. We would love to get you plugged into the mission of helping people find and follow Jesus uh, in our church body, through our ministries here, through our city partnerships, through our global partnerships. There should be no such thing as an unengaged Christian in the mission of Jesus. Here's the last application. Number three, Christian, we ought to be living to encourage one another and persevering through the world. Now, I don't know if you know this or not, but the Christian life ain't always easy. Have you figured that out yet? The Christian life ain't always easy. And that's why the message from the New Testament writers just kind of this refrain that's constantly repeated through the New Testament documents, just kind of on repeat is, as you see the day drawing near, as you see the day coming closer to the return of Jesus, as you see that day drawing near, encourage one another. You see the biblical writers say things like, hey, don't, don't neglect meeting together. Don't, don't neglect the, the Sunday worship gathering. Don't, don't, don't neglect being together. Instead, as the day draws near, be together, encourage one another, worship together, pray together, live life together. 
And what are we primarily encouraging one another to do? The biblical writers are clear, at least in part, to persevere. Because this is not an easy life to live as a follower of Jesus. And so we're encouraging each other in this walk with Jesus. And so what this might look like is we say, hey, bro, listen, I, I know, I know, brother, that following Jesus in middle school, high school, that's really hard. And you're going to be tempted to turn away because your friends are going to make fun of you or because you want to be cool or you want to date this girl or whatever it is. And it's us stepping up to the plate and saying, no, bro, we got this. We're going to run hard after Jesus. We're not going to give up. We're not going to surrender. We're going to go hard after him. Sister, listen, I, I know it's hard to follow after Jesus. It seems like everything in your life right now is just a series of disappointments. Sister, I know like everything in your life just seems hard right now. It seems like you're suffering right now. Listen, don't give up. I'll run with you. I'll run with you after Jesus. Don't give up. Don't turn back. It's going to be worth it in the end when we see Jesus face to face. We encourage each other as we see the day drawing near. And we persevere in the race that Jesus has laid before us. Listen, y'all, the bottom line is this. We have, listen, we have a just and loving king. And listen, he is coming back for us. We have a just and loving king, and he is coming back for us. And that is the best news you'll ever hear in your life. Let's pray, and then we're going to worship our king. Heavenly Father, come to you and we're grateful that you love us enough to give us the truth about who we are and the danger that we walk in apart from you. You love us enough to tell us the truth about ourselves. Even when it's hard. Thank you for being a loving father. Thank you for giving us the easy truths. Thanks for giving us the hard truths. Thank you most of all for sending Jesus to be our payment, our atonement for our sin. To take on the justice and the wrath of a perfect God that was reserved for us. That he bore all of that on the cross so that we never would have to. And thank you, Jesus, that you didn't just die, you didn't just rise but you've promised us that you're going to come back again. And everything that seems so jacked up in our world and so painful in our world and so sad in our world on that day when you return, all of that is going to be set right. And you're going to wipe away every tear. You're going to abolish death and cancer and rape and starvation and murder and injustice that day, you're going to make everything sad come untrue. Jesus, we, we long for your return. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Thank you that you are both a just and loving judge. Not only are you just, but you love us enough that you've given us a pathway to escape disaster by placing our faith and our trust in your son, Jesus. Help us to do that. If there's somebody here that hasn't done that, God, I pray that would change today now, maybe even in this moment, that they would cry out in their heart to you and say, God, I realize now that I can't save myself. I've been a fool to think that I could be self-sufficient in this life and eternity. So God, help me to turn away from doing life my way. Help me turn away from my sin. Help me place all of my faith, all of my trust in Jesus. 
who paid for my sins. I want, to, I want him to pay for my sins on that final day. I don't want to pay for my sins myself. I want, to, I want him to do it. I want to trust in his work on the cross in the empty tomb on my behalf. And God, for those of us who know you through Christ, would you help us to live out our lives in light of the reality that you are coming back to judge the living and the dead. Help us not to live as ignorant children. Help us to live purposeful lives. Help us to live ready for your return because it could be today. Help us to be engaged in your mission, not just kind of waiting until we die or waiting until you return, God. Help us be fully engaged in your mission. And help us encourage each other as we run this race to persevere in this life. We love you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, I want to invite you to stand with me. We're going to recite the creed together before we sing, as we do at the end of every service in this series. If you're not a Christian, uh, don't feel weird about reciting the creed. You don't have to recite it. You can just kind of look at it on the screens. But if you're here and you believe this stuff to be true, I want you to say it like you, like you mean it. On the count of three, one, two, three, here we go. I believe in God the Father Almighty creator of heaven and earth and in Jesus Christ God's only son our Lord who was conceived by the Holy Spirit born of the Virgin Mary suffered under Pontius Pilate was crucified died and was buried he descended into hell and on the third day he rose again from the dead he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty and he will come again to judge the living and the dead I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen.